I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. The range is infrastructure. The mechanical bowl is infrastructure. My little dog, Crosby, is infrastructure. The AFT, whatever that is, I'm sure is infrastructure. And the well from whence I draw buckets of the red wave is infrastructure. It's high for Thursday, April 8th, 2021. I had a request for a really big high noon. So asking ye shall receive. Just don't ask me for too many different things because then I'll forget. You can follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find the podcast on Gab and Parlor at I'm your moderator. And if you want some really special merch, go to www.cancelcotour.com. Today is the 78th full day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party to the point where he's happy to bend over backwards to disarm the American populace in favor of a globalist takeover led by China and the U.N., You think that's crazy? Well, did you think you would have to be wearing two masks last year? Nah, you didn't. Did you think as a full-grown adult, you were going to be talked to as a little child who can't understand when someone's lying? Nah, you didn't. So, I ain't saying I'm right, but I am saying you should open your mind to the possibilities. That's how thinking ahead works. Joe Biden is also the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history. Yes, even Dr. Jill Biden, who Joe was very happy to see at the Rose Garden today, so much so that he mentioned she was a doctor. Did he say that she was a doctor for writing a paper about community colleges? No, he left that out. But who really cares? She has a playboy body, according to Joe Biden. And now I've ruined your lunch. Joe Biden is also the father of one of the most despicable sons in world history. And that's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, communists. You voted for a dead guy. And now you get to do whatever the Chinese Communist Party tells you to do like you always wanted. And of course, I want to send an extremely warm welcome to any redeemable commies who might have tripped and landed on this podcast. We want you here, but not enough to make any adjustments for you. That's how it goes. I know you're used to forcing everyone to cater to you. But the truth is, no one cares about that anymore, Kami. So you're just going to have to live in the world that exists around you. You have no right to change it. And no right to expect anyone else to on your behalf. So suck it up. You're going to get made fun of. I'm going to tell you how terrible communism is over and over and over again. And however much you own that as a piece of yourself by getting offended, that's how much communism you need to get rid of. So if you just stick with me for a few episodes or maybe a few weeks, I'll turn you back into an American and then your life can start anew.
Now, for your benefit, all of you, I mean, not even just the communists, I actually watched Joe Biden's little gun speech in the Rose Garden. Kamala Harris came up and spoke first. Why Kamala Harris is speaking at all? Who knows? Why is she speaking first? Again, hard to say. But a lineup of Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, and then Merrick Garland is about enough to make anyone want to hammer nails right into their own eyeballs. These are three of the stupidest, most corrupt and incompetent people you could ever come across. And we have well less than half the country, but a very, very loud minority of communists trying to pretend that all three of those people are actually serious people. Now, I'm surprised. I was surprised yesterday. I got a, uh, a message in one of the one of the little text groups I'm in on on Telegram and a friend of mine on there shared some communications she'd been having with a communist on Instagram. And that communist actually believes that Joe Biden has accomplished more in these couple of months than Donald Trump did in his whole term. And, you know, I understand the delusion and I understand the bias. It was amazing to see that someone actually thought that they could get away with saying that in mixed company. Like, if there are no commies around, don't say commie shit. Because you're going to sound stupid. Okay, commies? None of you have said one smart thing in at least the last five years. Okay? And I know that you think you do. But the crazy thing about communists is that they're the ones who are constantly going on about low information voters. Hey, commies, you can't answer any questions. I could quiz any of you and make you look like the morons you are within 30 seconds. Like, please, by all means, let's put it to the test. I am more than happy to debate any communist, anytime, anywhere, so long as it's actually in public and they have to answer questions and not just scream about how somebody's racist all the time. But no communist is going to do that because they're going to get exposed. In fact, I got invited on a uh, podcast last week for about a couple of hours until they decided that that isn't going to work. And I actually kind of want to find this for you and and talk about what exactly this is, because it's so, so completely crazy. Now, I guess a mutual friend linked me with this person sometime last year, and they talked about having me on that podcast and then completely spaced out on that and then got in touch four months later, five months later, whatever it is. So this person is named uh, uh, Brandy Howard and they have a, a podcast called Dumb Gay Politics, right? And if you look at the podcast, you can see that they have 1900 ratings on there on iTunes, which is literally six seven times as many as I have, something like that, six, six times as many ratings as I have. That's a lot more listeners. I mean, granted, they've been around a lot longer as well, but that's a lot of listeners. And, you know, I read some episode descriptions. They have a bunch of advertisers, so they're clearly making money on this and clearly getting it out to enough people to retain those advertisers. But you also read the descriptions and understand that they don't know anything at all about politics. And so, you know, she asked me if I would come on. And I said, sure, I'll be happy to. And she asked about my availability and whatever. And I said, I said, listen, I, I, I want you to know up front, like I'm of course going to be polite and respectful, but if I come on your show, like I'm going to record it too, and I'm not going to be censored and I'm not going to be limited in the number of subjects I'm allowed to talk about. Okay. And they were like, yeah, yeah, we want you to be able to say anything you want. And I said, okay, well, 
good. That's excellent. Then I'm just going to make sure that you know that I will talk about how masks do not work. And I will talk about how Joe Biden is not a legitimate president. And there was overwhelming evidence of election fraud. And this person, Brandy, who seems like a perfectly nice person, was like, perfect. And I was like, okay, wonderful. Let's do it. Tell me when. I'm more than happy. I don't know if you're going to get what you want in 20 or 30 minutes because that's a very short amount of time for us to try to uh, come to some sort of understanding on these issues. And, you know, when I speak to people like this, I understand they're not going to know anything about these issues. So it's basically going to be me like doing a bunch of handholding and then trying to mitigate their level of offense and embarrassment, which is taxing and boring and senseless work that no intelligent person should ever have to do. But it's important that audiences who might listen to a political show with such a dearth of legitimate information get exposed to alternative points of view. Okay. And so um, you know, I basically told them I will discuss anything. It doesn't matter if it's about my personal life, about politics. You can ask me anything you want, and I'll do my best to give you an honest answer. Like, I'm not going to have my privacy violated, but if there's anything relevant, I'm more than happy to to share what I can say about these things. Like, I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to get offended. Ask me whatever you want. I was trying to be literally exactly as polite and respectful as I could be, right? But a couple hours later, I got another message that said, hey, I think that we're going to have to either push or cancel this because, you know, I talked to my partner and uh, she thinks the conversation's going to get heated and because she's a, a feminist lesbian, but down to seriously debate, but she won't be able to control herself. And I'm like, I'm like, wait a second, you're telling me that your co-host cannot control her emotions if someone disagrees with her or says something she doesn't like. And that was basically it. And I was like, listen, I don't need to have like a, uh, a nice kind conversation. I'm more than happy to have someone try to bring the heat to me as long as they can stand it themselves. And ultimately they, they did back out. And then they kind of shifted the response to be, well, you know, we don't we don't want you to have to argue with someone. And it's not like we were trying to force you to debate or anything. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm happy to debate. And I said, I'm more than happy to debate as many leftists as possible, as often as possible. Generally, this concern comes down to the clear knowledge that superficial opinions will be exposed to one's own audience, which is why none of us are ever invited to appear on these shows. And, uh, you know, she kind of explained herself some more. And I said, that certainly doesn't say much for your podcast integrity. I think it's pretty shockingly immoral to express political opinions you're not prepared to justify or support, particularly while ushering in an illegitimate communist regime who's abusing immigrants, destroying the right to vote, and covering up the greatest crimes in political history. But that's just me. And I was, I was really like shocked by this response because you know, and I think she's an honest person. I think she's probably a good person and just really doesn't know anything about politics and is just trying to go along to get along, that type of thing. Or maybe she's just the the funny host side of the political conversation. But the truth is that neither person that hosts this podcast is prepared to talk about politics at all, and they talk about politics every episode. They cannot back up any of their opinions, and they cannot even control themselves if someone disagrees with them. This is admitted on their part. I'm not trying to expose these people or attack these people. I don't care. I don't even know these people. This is a perfect example, though, of what I'm talking about. We get faced with some of the greatest simultaneous crises that have ever happened to this country, right? Or at least they were presented to us that way. And I suppose the crises are real although different than they're described. We had the pandemic, the very dangerous pandemic, followed by the very murderous George Floyd incident, 
followed by a summer of violence, followed by election fraud, followed by a cover up of election fraud. And now we have an illegitimate president, right? If you're out there speaking publicly about politics and you don't take the time to consider where your side might be wrong, you are doing a disservice not only to your audience, but to the society. And that is what people like this are doing. Okay, these communists did not have the the wherewithal to be able to face down a debate from the other side. Or they're, maybe they're simply scared of losing their platform because of the big lie. But if some communist with a platform wanted to come on my show, I would be more than happy to dismantle that person in an absolutely merciless and relentless way until not a single person would ever listen to them about politics ever again. I would gladly do that. Each and every single time. These people had that opportunity, right? I'm an outspoken voice on the other side. My podcast isn't huge, but I have some connections. I feel like it's going places. I hope it is. And I hope you guys like it. But they had the opportunity. I was going to come in there, go two on one, gladly answer their questions, quiz them, show their audience how little they know, and then move on with my life. But they're not okay with that. And it's either they think they're going to get canceled or they know they're going to be exposed. Because there's no way that it wouldn't be the most interesting episode of their podcast. There's no way any of the episodes are interesting because all they're doing is being two little influencer personalities, repeating the slogans and probably trying to make jokes between. That's not interesting. You can hear that in any outlet. You can open Twitter to someone's random account and get that. And people ask me like, oh, why are you so derisive and and mean to to communists? Well, this is why. Because they don't even realize they're communists, first of all, which is the stupidest part of it, although they will defend their level of communism that they perceive in themselves as a good idea. Well, you know, we're just taking elements of socialism. It's not actual socialism. Oh, oh, is that the smart view on it, Kami? And you would know this how, Kami? Oh, because Bernie told you. Got it. Of course, for me to accept that answer, I would actually have to know that Bernie Sanders could explain what the difference between socialism and communism is or socialism and democratic socialism. And I actually have watched him attempt to do this many, many times. But the difference as far as Bernie is concerned between democratic socialism and socialism is that democratic socialism is the way you sell it to turn a free society into a socialist society. It's just a manner of of speaking really to address a different audience, which is to say a misrepresentation. And he knows it. Everybody knows it. Bernie gave a long speech in, I think, 2015 or 2016 at Georgetown University, laying out what democratic socialism means to him. And he essentially talked about the plight of a whole bunch of people, as he always does, and then talked about FDR for a while, as he always does. And that was it. He didn't make any intellectual distinction. He didn't set any limits on the socialism. And of course, there are no limits on socialism. Socialism has no limiting principle. Socialism goes one direction continually until it becomes communism. It's a lesser form of communism. It's not something else. It's not like, yeah, we know communism didn't work, but we got this other thing. And this one definitely works. No, it doesn't. It's the same thing. They don't work. It's the dumbest idea ever, which is why that idea is only promoted by either the dumbest people ever or people who are looking to take control of populations and enslave them. And of course, we see ample examples 
of both. So Joe Biden today did a speech in the Rose Garden of the White House where he was informing Americans about all the things he intends to do to pass gun control measures. And that's what we call them, gun control measures, and not what they're really trying to do, which is disarm the American people. And again, I used to be a Democrat, and I've made all of their arguments before, and I thought that those arguments were convincing at the time. It turns out they're not. They're very bad arguments. And we can see right now what it looks like for a government to turn authoritarian and totalitarian and try to repress its own people. That's what's happening right now. Our country is literally being invaded by foreigners, some of them on our terrorist watch list, and no one seems to care. And of course, I'm not saying that all of the immigrants trying to come across our border are terrorists or violent or mean to harm America. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that at some point, we are no longer a country. And that point is when we open the borders. And Joe Biden has sworn an oath to protect and defend the United States against enemies foreign and domestic. That's not what he's doing. He's not defending the Constitution of the United States when he says things like no amendment is absolute. Which is what he said today in those words. I'm not making that up. He said no amendment is absolute. I hope that someone like Peter Ducey, for instance, has the nerve to ask Jen Psaki what other amendments Joe Biden feels are not absolute and which he can just override whenever he chooses. We can see that they're already very much for getting rid of the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. And now they're going for the second and Joe Biden said, whether Congress acts or not, he intends to use the power of his office to achieve the goals that he set out. Now, I'm not a constitutional expert, but I'm pretty damn sure that's not how the Constitution gets amended. There is actually a construct in our government designed for amending the Constitution. And that's how the Constitution gets amended, not by Joe Biden signing papers that are probably going to be blank. <laughs> Changing gun laws is the Congress's role. It's not the president's role. He is there to protect and defend the Constitution. He is doing the exact opposite. He is dismantling the Constitution. And it should be insulting to every American's intelligence when Politicians like Joe Biden make the argument that there is overwhelming support for his priorities, and there is not overwhelming support for his priorities. In fact, it's the opposite. He is not speaking the opinion of the majority. And if you don't believe that from the numbers or the polling, you can see it clearly in the fact that he's trying to do something through executive fiat that the Congress would not allow. And then in context of the court decision we talked about maybe last week, maybe the week before, where the Supreme Court overturned Donald Trump's ban on bump stocks that was instituted after the Las Vegas shooting. Now, I'm sure that Donald Trump didn't care too much about that ban in the first place, and it actually has been quite a positive thing that the Supreme Court actually had to rule on that because it should do quick work in invalidating Joe Biden's executive orders. The problem is that it might take two years or three years or whatever, I guess what was 2017, the middle of 2017, I think when the Vegas massacre occurred. So we're talking about three and a half years for that thing to get overturned. And 
that might happen with these two. I mean, obviously, none of us know how this is all going to play out, but it's not off to a good start. And then Joe Biden said that he was naming some gun control activist, some gun confiscation activist as the director of the ATF, or as Joe Biden knows it, the AFT, which I'm pretty sure is not a thing. But then again, Joe Biden is also worried about AR-14s. So here are the, the pillars of Joe Biden's plan. The Justice Department within 30 days will issue a proposed rule to help stop the proliferation of ghost guns. Now, these are like guns that are 3D printed or made from kits. And it makes the communists mad and sad because they don't have serial numbers and they can't track them, which would sound reasonable except they don't care about tracking any of the guns in, for instance, Chicago, where there are mass shootings essentially every weekend. The Justice Department within 60 days will issue a proposed rule to make clear when a device marketed as a stabilizing brace effectively turns a pistol into a short-barreled rifle subject to the requirements of the National Firearms Act. And Joe Biden, when talking about this, complained that the stabilizer, which is basically just a brace that goes against the shoulder so that the actual physical shooting process is more like shooting a rifle. And he complained that it would be more stable and more accurate, which in most intelligent minds would make you think, oh, yeah, well, that's safer, right? Because aren't you supposed to be trying to hit the target accurately rather than just shooting bullets willy-nilly? Is Joe Biden making the argument that mass shootings could be prevented by having less accurate guns? <laughs> I mean, what are they saying? Can we just take a minute with how silly this idea is? Now, I'm not saying I don't understand what the communists think when they hear this. They think, oh, well, a, st a more stable, more accurate gun, therefore, must be more deadly so they can wreak more havoc with a more deadly gun. I mean, I guess that's how it adds up, right? Still, what? Isn't part of their complaint about a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun? That whole principle, isn't there complaint that the good guy with the gun might miss and harm other people? They say that. So why would you want the good guy with a gun to have a less accurate gun. Riddle me that, Joe. I can't wait to hear the sound of the rusty gears clanking around in your feeble brain. The Justice Department, within 60 days, will publish model red flag legislation for states. Red flag laws allow family members or law enforcement to petition for a court order temporarily barring people in crisis from accessing firearms if they present a danger to themselves or others. Again, we have an instance that is parallel to their communication on the vaccine passport idea. They're going to set up the standard for everyone else to enforce and then pressure them to enforce it. And they'll do this because they can't do it themselves. But this is the way that it seems like they are doing it themselves. And then it also gives them cause to try to override the rights of the states to set their own laws. Disregarding the fact that, of course, the end of the Second Amendment contains the words shall not be infringed. And that 
sounds pretty absolute. But these red flag laws are actually much more pernicious than that. We are in a state right now where it is a common understanding among communists and people addicted to the central narrative that discussing the overwhelming evidence of a fraudulent election actually makes you a domestic terrorist and makes you dangerous. They're setting up all sorts of ways that an American citizen can be deemed dangerous by his or her government. They're going to continue to loosen that standard in the way they talk about everything to the point where it seems they'll be happy to make the argument that people who do not agree with the central narrative, people who are expressing their own political beliefs, are thereby dangerous to the American public. And as soon as we see this sort of behavior, we can petition the court to have that person's gun rights removed. Now, if the government is stepping in to then petition the court and the government is also tracking the things that people tweet, the places they go, the government can be constantly petitioning for people's guns to be taken away by the court under these red flag laws. You might think it's crazy that I'm saying that they'll do that about speech. But again, all the things I've said that people thought were crazy have turned out to be correct. Aside from the timing on the election, although I'm going to win that one, too. So settle down. But what would be stopping an overreaching government? from claiming that the things I say mean that I am a danger to myself or others, and therefore they can strip me of my Second Amendment rights. That is where this is going. That is where they want it to go. That's what the red flag laws do. They're not going to stop mass shootings. People who want to commit crimes with guns can generally get guns to commit those crimes. So you take away someone's guns. If that person wants to go out and kill people, they can find other guns. But of course, we don't want that, and we do know that that's true. So then what do we do? Well, I guess we better imprison that person until we're quite sure that that person is not a danger to anyone. And that's always what's next. The administration is investing in evidence-based community violence interventions. Okay, what evidence, what interventions, and show me the evidence. Again, this is just the groundwork to them having the CDC put gun control under its purview. Because they'll say it's a public health crisis. And they need to eliminate gun violence. But not only is it not a public health crisis because it's not about health. Even if it were, that's not why they're doing this. If they cared about gun violence, they would enforce the laws in Chicago. But they don't because relying on the police to actually protect communities is no longer their job. It's just an element of of systemic racism. The Justice Department will issue an annual report on firearms trafficking. Oh, well, that'll solve it. Is the report going to be as accurate as the one they do on hate crimes or on terrorism, for instance, since now 9-11 was committed by white guys in their reports? Yeah, I think it's going to be. The president will nominate David Chipman to serve as director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, otherwise known as the AFT, apparently. And then Joe made the claim that at gun shows, people can just go buy whatever guns they want without background checks. And I don't think we need to spend time on talking about how ridiculously untrue that is. But I would like to discuss 
while we're on the subject of properly registering guns, Joe Biden's own son, Hunter Biden, lied on a federal form to get his gun. That's a felony and no one seems to care. So if you can't even apply the law to your own children, why are you going to try to apply it to everyone else? And by the way, literally 100% of the people in America are more responsible than Hunter Biden. Okay. Like, yeah, there might be 10 or 20 people who are less responsible than Hunter Biden, but that's statistically insignificant. So we can just say a hundred percent. In fact, I think I could construct an argument about why Hunter Biden is the least responsible person in the entire country, because he actually never has to even face the consequences of his actions or be held accountable for them. So that actually makes him more brazen in his irresponsibility and his recklessness. Him smoking Parmesan from the carpet for the last 10 years gets him a $3 million book deal. So try that one on for size. Cuomo, a $4 million book deal. Mike Pence now, a $4 million book deal. $11 million on book deals to read ghost-written propaganda by three people the country otherwise would be inclined to hate. You know how many books you got to sell to recoup that if you're the publisher? Way more than you're ever going to sell. And so again, what are book deals? Book deals are payoffs. Book deals are money laundering. No one buys those. No one bought $5 million worth of Bernie Sanders books. That was Bernie's payoff for keeping his mouth shut about election fraud in 2016 and ever since, which is probably why he was sitting there in the bitter cold with an angry scowl on his face and his striped mittens. And I'm glad that picture exists because it makes great memes. But that's the real Bernie. Mad that he's such a sellout. Mad that he'll never have the communist power that he wanted. He'll always only be a manager. He always wanted to get to the top of the communist food chain. He figured he'd be the czar. Does anyone doubt that that was his actual political ambition for his entire career? Of course it is. It's not like he got anything done. Bernie has been one of the least effective politicians in the last five decades. Joe Biden's right up there. But even Joe Biden has accomplished more than Bernie Sanders. And of course he has, because Joe Biden is literally only doing the bidding of moneyed interests. And it's a lot easier to get stuff done when you have that on your side. But anyway, Hunter went to get a gun and lied on the form. Then his gun was taken from him and thrown out in a grocery store across the street from a school. That's how gun crime happens, Joe. Put your son in prison and we'll start believing you. How about that? That's what a man with integrity would do if this was an actual principled argument. And so yesterday in the afternoon, I was listening to John Solomon's Just the News podcast, which is great. I don't listen to it every day, but I, when, when a guest pops up that I think sounds interesting, I'll give it a listen. And yesterday, John Paul Mac Isaac's lawyer, I always, <laughs> it's so hard to remember four first names. I mean, when people have three first names, cool. Got it. That sounds pretty normal. But John Paul Mac Isaac is too much. But I think I, I nailed it so we can move on. But his lawyer appeared on John Solomon's podcast yesterday, and the lawyer was reaffirming the truth that I've spoken about on here many times, that there is no doubt that Hunter took that computer there and that he signed the receipts. There's no doubt whatsoever. 
So Hunter's saying that the laptop could be stolen or it could be hacked or it could be Russian intelligence or it could be stolen. Those four options, two of which are the same, are all lies. The computer's real. What's on it is real and has been confirmed by other parties in the emails. Joe Biden's son is completely corrupt. Joe Biden is completely corrupt. And let's go to the National Pulse for more. This is from yesterday by Mike McCormick. Exclusive unearthed emails place Hunter Biden at West Wing meeting with then VP Biden and Burisma board partner Devin Archer. In a previously unreported email reviewed by the National Pulse, Rosemont Seneca Partners employee Joan K. Pugh advises Hunter Biden, who is addressed by his given name, Robert, that he is scheduled for a White House meeting on April 16th, 2014. Prior to today, it was known that Devin Archer had attended the meeting in the West Wing and corporate media outlets excused the matter as an art project discussion. Today, that version of events ends. Just days after this meeting, then President, then Vice President Joe Biden visited Ukraine and both Hunter and Archer would start receiving whopping checks from energy company Burisma, an industry in which they had zero experience. Hunter Biden recently admitted the previously dismissed hard drive from hell actually could be his. The line item of the email, which they screenshotted itself dated April 15th, 2014, reads 1115 a.m. Meet Devin and Luke at Pete's Coffee and head to W.H. Jamie Lyons is and then a phone number if anything comes up. Lyons at the time was an assistant to Joe Biden's chief of staff, Steve Reschetti, which indicates attention by the vice president himself into the visit of the two soon to be Burisma board members. Significantly, this April 16th meeting occurred only five days before Joe Biden took his second vice presidential trip to Ukraine to deliver a substantial package of assistance to Ukraine, including energy security, some of which directly benefited the company Burisma, which would simultaneously start fattening his son's wallet. Obama White House visitor logs dated April 16th, 2014 and reviewed by the National Pulse confirm Hunter Biden's business partner, Devin Archer, and his son, Luke Archer, were indeed admitted to the West Wing at 1130 a.m. to meet the vice president. As a family member of the vice president, Hunter Biden would have been able to access the White House without having a visitor's appointment, so his name would not appear in the visitor logs. To this date, it is unclear if he was a part of the meeting. This newly published email is the first traceable evidence that Hunter Biden was also president at his business partner's West Wing meeting with his father, and it potentially refutes Joe Biden's assertion that he knew nothing of Hunter's business in Ukraine. If anything, this looks more like a planning meeting for the three. Department of Treasury records indicate both Hunter Biden and Devin Archer started receiving wire transfer payments from Burisma starting just a few weeks later in May 2014. These totaled over $4 million. President Trump's first impeachment hinged on his belief that Joe Biden initiated the firing of a Ukrainian prosecutor who was investigating corruption at Burisma, which Biden had bragged about on several occasions. Archer has since been convicted of securities fraud, which he perpetrated against the Oglala Sioux tribe at the same time of his West Wing meeting with Biden. The email is also the first documented meeting to date within the White House itself between Joe Biden and the Burisma boys, Hunter and Devin. Malfeasance would be the charge if Vice President Biden was indeed using his office to promote their business opportunities. This 2014 West Wing meeting was also identified as suspicious in September 2020 by Senate Homeland Security Governmental Affairs Committee in their report on Hunter Biden's shady dealings in Ukraine, Russia and China. At the time of their report, they did not know of this email. The report read. On April 16th, 2014, Vice President Biden met with his son's business partner, Devin Archer, at the White House. Five days later, Vice President Biden visited Ukraine. And soon after, he was described in the press as the public face of the administration's handling of Ukraine. The day after his visit, on April 22nd, Archer joined the board of Burisma. Six days later, on April 28th, British officials seized $23 million from the London bank accounts of Burisma's owner, Mykola Zlochevsky. Fourteen days later, on May 12th, Hunter Biden joined the board of Burisma, and over the course of the next several years, Hunter Biden and Devin Archer were paid millions of dollars from a corrupt Ukrainian oligarch for their participation on the board. 
The corporate media, however, has refused to acknowledge that this meeting could indicate a corrupt Joe Biden using his office to enrich his family in the final years of the Obama Biden administration. The most egregious example is perhaps Adam Entis, a reporter with The New Yorker, who had extensive contact with Hunter Biden and Devin Archer for a previous article. In a September 23rd, 2020 tweet, no longer available, Entis insisted the April 16th, 2014 meeting between Vice President Biden and Devin and Luke Archer was for a school art project. From the looks of it, they supplied him with a brief video that advanced their narrative. Entis, of course, mindlessly amplified it. With this newfound evidence of Hunter's presence for what he published was an art project discussion, maybe Entis can admit he was manipulated by the Bidens into covering for them. And again, just another tiny piece of evidence that goes to exactly the thing that I say at the beginning of every one of these podcasts since Joe Biden became fake president. He is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party and other foreign adversaries. This is obvious. He has sold his office for five decades. First, to banking interests in Delaware, and now, once he got on the national stage, to whoever would pay. This is anti-American, okay? Apart from the corruption stuff, apart from the corruption stuff, he is using his falsely elected office to advance the goals of adversarial countries so that he can line his own pockets. And this is what I was saying last week. Joe Biden's not Hitler. Joe Biden can't be Hitler. Joe Biden has no ideology. Joe Biden is like the guy who only accidentally ends up mob boss because the last one died and then they're just waiting to kill him off. Because he can never be a mob boss. He can't run an organization. All he does is stick around and line his pockets. And that's all he's ever done. Now, one more piece from the National Pulse and their fantastic reporter, Natalie Winters. And then we're going to go see what's happening with you and on Palmer over at Newsweek. So this is from this morning. Exclusive New York Times staff admit previously working for Chinese Communist Party. It has its benefits. The news comes as the New York Times breathlessly backs big corporates opposed to Georgia's new voting voting laws. The New York Times, however, seems less concerned with employing genocidal Chinese Communist Party apparatchiks. Jonah Kessel, the current director of cinematography at the New York Times, served as the creative director of China Daily from July 2009 to November 2010 before departing work as a Chinese based photographer and cinematographer whose clients include People's Republic of China Ministry of Information. Now, New York Times should not need a director of cinematography. You're a newspaper. But then again, the New York Times is about to start launching scripted content because they don't actually care about being a newspaper and they don't care about being objective. They want to produce content and they want to sell people's data, which, by the way, is what they do. And they have said it openly. Kessel describes himself as redesigning China Daily, a gig he was psyched for and boasted about how publications such as The Economist hyped his redesign. While working for China Daily, Kessel tweeted several times that he was working for and getting paid by the Chinese Communist Party. Sometimes working for the PRC has its benefits. Smiley face. He tweeted in July 2010. And in November 2009, he tweeted, you know, you work for the PRC when the first word that comes to your mind when asked to describe your workplace is harmonious. That right there is a dyed in the wool communist. Kessel also praised China's National Day holiday, which com commemorates the Chinese Communist Party takeover of the country as very cool in capital letters. And even after departing China Daily, Kessel admits to still working for the Communist Party of China while serving as the creative director for his personal cinematography business. Diarmuid, I guess that's a name, McDermott, a current staff editor and designer at The New York Times, previously held the same positions at China Daily. 
From 2012 to 2020, he worked on the state-run outlets Asia Weekly publication, a role which he describes on his resume as involving copy editing, rewriting raw copy, designing layout and graphics, sourcing news stories and pictures, developing and maintaining a web presence across multiple platforms, outputting pages for printers across the region. His personal website also promotes his work for China Daily. Another New York Times reporter, Alex Marshall, served as a China Daily editor from 2003 to 2004, according to his LinkedIn profile. Marshall, who covers culture, has described himself as a China apologist and praised speeches by Xi Jinping on Twitter. Marshall has also tweeted about how it's nice to see communist ideals invoked by the government. The New York Times is one of several Western news organizations that takes part in a Marxist journalism school in collaboration with the Chinese Communist Party. The New York Times has previously expressed sympathy for Adolf Hitler, as well as being owned by a pro-slavery family. The paper has never apologized for these historical positions. So again, when I say we have a state media, and when I say that all of these institutions are compromised by the Chinese Communist Party or committed to the Chinese Communist Party's goals. I'm not making it up. And recall back in September, there was a data leak that contained the names of two million members of the Chinese Communist Party who had infiltrated institutions across the globe. And many of them here in the United States. That's what they do. I think one of the problems with people trying to understand where people like me are coming from is that when I describe all of the aspects of the corruption that's happening now, it actually sounds like the scale is too large to be real, like it's impossible that something could be this planned and this coordinated and this well executed, I suppose over the course of so many decades and with so many thousands, maybe millions of people involved. But the thing is, it's not that hard to coordinate people's activities once they are committed to a common goal. They're all seeking that same goal independently. It's not like all of the actions are orchestrated, but the goal is the same. So they're all working toward that goal. And then to top it off, they actually are incentivized either through payoffs or through compromise, or through threats. And, of course, those things all work together. But it actually isn't hard to see how something like this works. I mean, you could look at the history of any ideology, and it's going to resemble this in some way. It's infiltration into our institutions, particularly the education. You know, I, I think I've shared this story on here before, but... My girlfriend is Mexican from Mexico, and I asked her, I don't know, sometime last summer or fall, like, hey, do schools in Mexico and does Mexican culture, does it ever teach you to hate Mexico? And she like laughed like that was the stupidest question of all time, because, of course, to anyone who has any sense of pride for their nation or their home, that is a stupid question. Like, why would you ever ask me something so dumb? That's how she took it, because it is that dumb. But here we actually have that. I mean, I'm 42. But in my schooling, I remember getting enough of that stuff that America was bad. And that the problems around the world are America's fault, that America exploits people on foreign lands for our own advancement. And because there's an extent to which some of that is true, then you assume it's all true. And then you want to assume the guilt as well as if something that you can do would expunge that guilt from history. But that's not your guilt. Like there's nothing about me that is responsible for how people treated Native Americans 250 years ago. Sorry, it's literally impossible for me to take genuine moral responsibility for that. And that's what the wokes and the communists don't understand. They think that they're actually able 
to take on that moral guilt. But again, that's not possible. Like philosophically, it is not possible for you to sincerely hold someone else's guilt. You are only acting. And then whatever guilt you show is inauthentic. And so how could you solve a problem that you obviously don't understand and that doesn't even exist on the terms you're giving it? There's not a millennial alive today that can do anything about atrocities that were committed 250 years ago. And that's one of those statements that shouldn't require explaining. It should be obviously true. But since we've had this communist infestation in our education system, there are people who would actually think that they're making an intelligent argument by disputing that. But sorry, Kami, unless you have a time machine in the backyard, you're going to have to shut the hell up and let the adults talk. So Yuanon Palmer from Newsweek has another hilarious Q article today. How QAnon and ISIS radicalize supporters in the same way. And recall the discussion this week about defeat disinfo and mainstream one. Remember, they are using AI technology developed by the military that they used to defeat ISIS against American citizens. And you can hear echoes of that in what Anon Palmer is writing. So, yeah, this article is from today. People are radicalized into the QAnon conspiracy theory in much the same way as those who joined up with the Islamic State militant group ISIS, according to an extremist expert, an extremist expert. You got that? That's a real job in a communist society. Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler. (laughs) All right, German. How did you become an extremist expert? You're going to have to answer me that. Senior director of the Counter-Extremism Project talked about the similarities in how ISIS and QAnon managed to appeal to people to join and how they also attract the same type of person during an episode of The Hunt with WTOP National Security Correspondent J.J. Green. I have no idea what WTOP is. Maybe it's a television station. I'm also going to have to look up who's funding the Counter-Extremism Project. Schindler described how, just like QAnon, ISIS propaganda found an audience by being shared online. Oh, well, that's how Taylor Swift found an audience, too, you dumb communist fucks. The difference being most people did not fully comprehend how the beliefs of QAnon, listed as a domestic terrorist threat by the FBI, no, they're not, could escalate into real-life violence until their supporters stormed the Capitol on January 6th. No, they didn't. ISIS propaganda very quickly gained the attention of everyone around the world because they put up extremely horrific images of beheadings and mass killings, Schindler said. Yeah, and it's not because Barack Obama. For QAnon, it was for a long time perceived as a group of weirdos who are absolutely bereft of any rationality. Oh, really, Schindler? Let's have a conversation about it. Hans? Hans Jacob? Schindler said it was not just the U.S. who failed to understand the magnitude of the threat behind new aspects of extreme right-wing groups and movements. Just like ISIS, the QAnon movement was also evolved to become a more international threat. Well, no, it's not a threat anywhere. It's more international because people are realizing how corrupt their governments are, too. Schindler said the January 6th insurrection was immediately perceived as a challenge by German far-right extremists who had tried to storm Germany's parliament last August while protesting coronavirus restrictions in the country. What? Who did you talk to in that movement, Yuanan? Who did you talk to in that movement that perceived the BLM Antifa insurrection as a challenge. What in the world is this nonsense? 
The radical movement also started gaining some traction in Japan with worldwide anti-vaccination marches, which were heavily linked to QAnon taking place on March 20th. And one last quote from Herr Schindler. So we do have something that's ISIL-like in the way it functions, Schindler added, using an alternative acronym for the Islamic terrorist group. It has affiliates outside the country of origin. It does function transnationally. When asked what tactics are in play in order to radicalize new supporters, Schindler said QAnon and ISIS are both, quote, very cult-like, end quote, and encouraged people to show disregard to those outside the group. Again, that's a blatant, flat-out lie. The number one way that ISIS recruited and that QAnon followers are created is social isolation, Schindler said. Well, wait a second. Social isolation definitely does produce crazy, crazy ideas and cults. Which is exactly how all of the communists are so scared of the coronavirus and have Anthony Fauci pillows. You fucking psychos. It is unbelievable how dumb these people think everyone else is. Hey, Schindler, you're the dummy. You do not talk to the non-believers because they will bring you from the narrow straight path of truth. Dude, you communists have spent five years telling everyone who supports Donald Trump or America that they are hateful bigoted, awful, violent, conspiratorial racists who are obsessed with Donald Trump. You sociopaths. That social isolation then serves as a mechanism to bind you stronger to the movement and to bind further into their imagined realities. Huh? And at a certain point, it is very hard to get out of that social isolation again because you are in a really different reality. If you only talk to people who think the same that you think, reality will look different in your head to what it really is, Schindler said, not realizing apparently that he's one of the people who thinks that 81 million people voted for Joe Biden. And that's the same thing with QAnon, the same thing as it is with ISIL. Again, that you get so down the rabbit hole that getting out by yourself is a great act of (laughs) self-discipline. This is one of the dumbest things I've ever read. Okay. Let's go back to the headline here. The headline and what you would think to be the thesis of this article is that QAnon and ISIS radicalize supporters in the same way. Number one. No one radicalizes QAnon supporters. People either read the posts or they don't. And they try to figure out what they mean or they don't. There's nothing radical about that. It's just reading stuff. Okay? It's not radical to understand that all the corruption we talk about on a daily basis actually does exist in the world. I came to all of my beliefs, all of my positions, without even knowing what Q was. I was doing this podcast before I even knew what Q was. I thought that it was some crazy conspiracy theory. And maybe it is, by the way. I still will say that. But I came to all of these positions on my own. You don't need Q. You just need to try to figure out if stuff people say that the media tries to silence might actually be true. That's it. And that's all I did. I got to this point through looking at COVID statistics. Not through looking at posts on 8Kun. But I'll tell you what, every Anon on the entire planet is smarter than Anon Palmer and Hans Jacob Schindlerheimer Schmidt. And that's my name too. At the end of all of this, I think that one of the greatest joys will be no longer having to be insulted by morons like these, by communists like these. I long for that day. But until that day comes, I'm going to stand right here and keep saying the same shit and keep relentlessly making fun of communists and 
their terribly stupid, amoral belief system. And I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. And Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Please follow the podcast on Instagram and Parler at I'm Your Moderator. Soon I'll be up on Rumble with a video aspect. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the show, I have a Substack, I'm Your Moderator.substack.com, where you can donate, or you can donate at anchor.fm by searching Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. I hope to see you soon. Back out on the rain. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!